Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Cindy Kuzma. Cindy is a freelance writer based in Chicago. Her primary beat is running. She's written for several magazines about the subject. She's also co-authored books and co-hosts the podcast, The Injured Athletes Club. And she writes about other subjects, too. Cindy graduated from Baylor University with a master's degree from the Medill School at Northwestern. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm good. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, As we always do with every guest, what's your journalism origin story? Yeah, well, thanks again for asking me to be here. I'm really excited, too. My journalism origin story is that when I first got to Baylor University, I'd always loved writing as a child, but I never really thought about it as a career. And when I first got to Baylor University, I thought I was going to major in psychology, but I took my first psychology class and didn't like it because there was too much science, which is kind of funny given how my career has turned out. Uh, But I did take as an elective a mass media class, my first journalism class, and I was really fascinated by journalism. Also, to be honest, thought the professor was kind of cute. And so I uh, stuck with that, changed my major, ended up working on the college newspaper, The Baylor Lariat, which is actually where I met my husband, Matt Kuzma, with whom you are familiar. Um, And it's kind of funny that we both uh, ended up in sports journalism in a way years later. But anyway, I majored in journalism uh, in between college and grad school. I did an internship at my hometown newspaper, the Plano Star Courier, and uh, then went on to graduate school at Northwestern. And and from there on to, to writing. We will mention yeah. that I uh, want to thank Matt Kuzma for uh, <laughs> alerting me to the fact that you're a journalist. Uh, Matt Matt and his one of his friends has a podcast about baseball that I particularly enjoy. And it's serendipitous how this worked out. So with that in mind, is there anything in your family or heritage that lent itself to storytelling or just running? Yeah, interestingly, not really. You know, my parents said that I always loved books as an infant and they were reading to me a lot as a child and taking me to the library, that kind of thing. My mom told me, it was funny, I saw her last week. She still lives in Texas where I grew up, but we had a chance to meet up last week and she was telling me that she would go to my first grade classes and she was very impressed by the stories about animals that I wrote in first grade. (laughs) So, But, you know, the other thing that I was thinking about when I was reflecting on this question is that I grew up an only child and we moved around a lot when I was in elementary school. I know you had another recent guest talk about being an only child being kind of a formative experience. And I think because I was around a lot of adults and I was always trying to adjust to a new place and never quite feeling like I fit in, I really kind of honed in on being an observer and chronicling what was going on. And my mom also said that when we go on car trips as a child, I would take a lot of note. I would be always writing in my journal, but I was like, I didn't really journal that much. But actually, I remembered that what I was doing was writing really long letters to my friends about our trip. So even then I was kind of writing for an audience, which is kind of funny. So yeah, I think that maybe that that's where it came from. And running, actually, no, neither of my parents are athletic. And I was not athletic growing up. I did marching band in high school and college. And it wasn't until graduate school when I actually stepped off a curb funny and twisted my ankle and couldn't walk for a little while. And I was really unhappy with kind of my stress level and the way I was taking care of my body. And I was like, I need to move more. Let me try running. And that's kind of when I started running. And that's also when I got interested in health and science reporting because Medill had a great specialty 
like you, you could take different classes and different tracks. And one of the classes that I took was in health and science reporting. And it kind of took me back to those early science days. And I was like, oh, wait, I could learn about this and write about it. Like, that's actually pretty cool. And then I also personally got interested in running at that time. So from there, that kind of all came together. So before you worked as a journalist, you worked on the other side. You worked for six years as a public information officer at, at the Journal of the American Medical Association. Uh, what did that entail? And how does uh, something like that help you now? Yeah, um, that mostly entailed. So at the time that was, it was called JAMA and the archives journals and archives were specialty medical journals that were, um, you know, archives of internal medicine or ophthalmology or dermatology. And I was responsible for those journals. And basically I would read those journals each and every week, pick the studies that I thought were the most newsworthy and write news releases about them that I would then send out to reporters. And I would say it was incredibly valuable. I learned so much about how to read a medical study and that served me so well in my career afterward. And I also learned a lot about kind of the precision that's needed when you're writing about these things. I mean, the I have to give a shout out and thanks to Dr. Phil Fontana Rosa, who edited all my news releases there at, at JAMA and the archives, because he was very picky about the kind of language and making sure we used mortality instead of death. And, you know, obviously, when you are translating those into an article for a lay audience, you're not going to use all of those technical medical terms, but it really gave me an appreciation for the exact meaning of each terms and how to responsibly convey that into lay language. So I really appreciate having that background. All right. So to talk about your writing career, you've been freelance since uh, 2011. Why? Yeah, it's a great question. And believe it or not, it was a voluntary move. I feel like so often it isn't for people these days. But, you know, I pretty much after I finished graduate school, I pretty much always wanted to just write. And I wanted to write about health and science and those kinds of topics. I didn't really want to edit or manage but those were kind of the jobs that were available. And I also didn't want to leave Chicago. So I did those other kinds of jobs. And and like I said, really enjoyed them, especially working at JAMA. But I always freelanced on the side, even while I was doing those other jobs. And eventually, I got to the point where I realized that I could probably sustain a freelancing career. I was doing enough on the side that I thought, okay, I have a good baseline. I could do more if I had more time, but I have this day job, you know. And I also, you know, I was just getting to the point where I couldn't sustain them both. So I kind of had to pick. And when I looked around, I looked at my boss's job. I didn't really want it, even though I loved her. And so I just decided to take the leap. And around that same time, I had an editor that I had written for in the past at another publication who moved on to Men's Health, which at the time was a Rodale publication. And she asked me if I wanted to start writing for her there. And so that's kind of how I broke into national magazines and national publications. So all that happened around the same time and kind of convinced me that there was viability to this as a career. So so we've had one freelancer on previously, Pete Croato. And he said that it's challenging all the pitching that you have to do and all the different things that that go into it. How do you find it? It's definitely challenging, but you know, so is any job. And I just find the uh, the challenges to be the ones that I enjoy facing a little bit more. I mean, obviously, pitching is rather exhausting and time consuming, and sometimes you don't always know if it's going to pay off in the end. But I've been able to. I'm fortunate enough to build relationships with editors over the years where it's a little bit easier to pitch. I at least have a foot in the door at places I know they'll open my email, which sometimes is like the biggest struggle, even getting your pitch read. I also get a lot of assignments from editors and I'm kind of looped into a lot of publications. So I'm having conversations with editors that then turn into stories later on. So it's definitely challenging in a lot of ways, but, you know, people often ask like, well, aren't, 
like, don't you feel like you'd prefer stability? And I just, I don't know that that exists in the media landscape today. And I feel like I maybe have more of it than anyone. Cause one of my clients goes away. I have a lot more and I have always have like a lot of different dials and levers I can turn to do more of one thing and less of another. So that's pretty cool. So a lot of your ideas deal with uh, medical issues as relates to running and not all of them, uh, a pretty uh, decent mix of things, but let's start out with just one, just to walk people through it. You recently did a piece for Runner's World titled, Are Breastfeeding Runners at Greater Risk of Bone Injuries? How did this come about and what was the reporting process? I've written about the issue of running postpartum before. I co-wrote One of the books that I co-authored was about running for women and it had a chapter on postpartum and preg- uh, pregnancy and postpartum running in it. Um, but this particular story came up because of an Instagram post by one of the runners I quoted in the story, Lexi Thompson. Um, she's an elite runner who had this happen to her, had a stress fracture when she was breastfeeding and was really confused about why it happened and posted about it. And there were a lot of comments from other runners who had similar issues. And I also I have to give a shout out here to one of my colleagues, Allison Wade. She runs a newsletter and social media account called Fast Women, which is I can't, if you're a fan of distance running and women's distance running, you you are probably already subscribed, but if not, you should go out and subscribe. She's a fantastic source of information. And she had reposted this, this post on Instagram and she got a lot of a surprising number of responses, both from experts and other runners saying, oh yeah, this happened to me too. Or, or yeah, we know this happens, but we runners don't know how to deal with it. So she she mentioned it to one of my editors who mentioned it to me. And I was like, yes, I would love to look into this more. So I then reached out to that runner, Lexi Thompson, who who posted in the first place. She agreed to talk with me. I talked with Molly Huddle, who was a well-known elite runner who I are, have already talked to many times in the past who had had a similar issue. From there, I kind of talked to some of the experts that Molly had worked with, some of the experts who also commented on the Instagram post or reached out to Fast Women who said, oh, yes, we know this happens. Some other experts that I had interviewed before and just kind of putting a lot of the pieces together. Um, And I wanted to make sure I covered all the bases on this, including talking to a psychologist who specializes in working with athletes and new moms and people who have disordered eating or eating disorders, because those are all things that factor into injuries in runners at any stage. And especially in this stage, because as I write about, you're just expending so many calories when you're making a human and then feeding a human that that's one of the reasons why um, runners are kind of at risk in this time period. I just wanted to make sure, you know, the point of this article wasn't to scare people or suggest that they shouldn't be running during or after pregnancy. Because as I mentioned, you know, I wrote a book where I talk about this, but the idea is just to really give people information about their health and help them understand that this is a risk that they might face at this time and to understand what experts know about it right now, what they're still studying and what advice they have about how to prevent this. And also just for runners to know that they're not alone when this kind of thing happens to them, because sometimes, you know, when you get an injury and it seems to come out of nowhere and you think you're doing everything right, it can feel really isolating. And so I think just kind of normalizing that a little bit is a goal of a lot of my work. So that was the case in this story too. Yeah. In print and as we'll mention later on the podcasting side as well, How much of an understanding of medical terms and issues and things like eating disorders do you need to cover running? Well, I think it's incredibly helpful because as we were kind of chatting a little bit about before we got on the, the, before we started recording, injuries are incredibly common in distance running and eating disorders are incredibly common in distance running. So even if you're just kind of writing race results, you're probably going to encounter some of that. So I think it's really helpful to have a basic understanding. 
I think for me, the way I cover running, it's pretty critical. And I really think of it as an area of expertise for me and kind of a differentiator in my work. And, you know, I try really hard to kind of bridge those gaps because, you know, one of the things that I find in working on a story like that or in working on other stories, another one that falls kind of into this category that I'm pretty proud of is one about a condition called runner's dystonia, which is a very rare condition that has now become more prominent because there have been some high profile athletes who have developed it and have been talking about it. But it's, again, kind of one of those things where people sometimes struggle for years before they get a diagnosis. But I've interviewed experts who are like, yeah, when someone walks into my office, I can tell within five minutes that this is what they have. And so to think that there are people who struggle for years and experts who have the answers, but there just isn't always the connection between them is, is really, you know, frustrating to me or like that drives my work to try to bring those things together. And I know for a fact, I still hear today that people who have dystonia have found that article and found out and helped it helped them put the pieces together a little bit more quickly. So for those kinds of things, I think it's really important. It's kind of like, I guess, a solutions journalism related to personal wellness, which okay. is kind of neat. So also another piece that you did, you covered an investigation into the University of Colorado and harmful body composition testing that they did on athletes. And then you did a later piece, again, referencing solutions journalism, showing how other schools are moving away from this. What did the reporting on that one entail? Well, it was really tough, as you as you might imagine. So, you know, like I mentioned, I'd written a lot of stories through the years about injuries and about eating disorders and disordered eating and this condition that's relatively newly defined called relative energy deficiency in sport. It's kind of like where you just, again, referring back to, to the breastfeeding issue, when you don't have enough energy intake to support the training that you're doing, there are all kinds of mental and physical consequences to that. So, you know, you can only write about that for so long in individual athletes before you start to ask questions about the culture that is perpetuating that, or you hear these messages from athletes that, well, you know that there are like genetic predispositions to things like eating disorders, but you also are hearing athletes say that. So there's a fabulous reporter and editor at Runner's World with whom I work a lot, Sarah Lodge Butler, and we were both curious about these issues, including how this is treated in collegiate programs. We heard that a lot of them have traditionally in the past used things like weigh-ins and body comp testing, which experts have told me, and I talked to a lot of people who have expertise in eating disorders, and they've said that these kinds of things can play a role in the development of those conditions. So especially when you go beyond just testing and actually start telling athletes to manipulate or change their body composition. I mean, the message that a lot of athletes get from this is that it's always better to be lighter. You're always going to be faster if you're lighter. So we were curious about how that's used, how that's changing, and whether it's beneficial or detrimental. So there's kind of three questions, right? Or several questions, right? Who's using this testing? How are they using it? What are the benefits of testing and manipulating body composition? And what are the harms? Do the benefits outweigh the harms? And are there other ways to be successful without employing this strategy? So we kind of started looking at this in several ways. And one way was to reach out to other people, athletes who had spoken publicly about their experience with body comp testing. And it was in reaching out to a runner who had been quoted about their negative experiences in another publication that we found out there was an investigation happening at, at CU. And the, their complaints about this had risen to the level that they were conducting an internal investigation into it. So from there, you know, this is one of the most prestigious and prominent distance running programs in the country with a coach who's been there for 30 years. So that kind of became 
a news story at that point that there's this program that all these NCAA champions and Olympians had come out of that is conducting an internal inquiry into their practices here. So we've then started treating it as a news story. You know, I followed up by talking with a lot of people associated with the program. Some were those who had filed the complaints and some were people I had talked to in the past or people that Sarah had talked to in the past. Many of them I never even quoted, even anonymously, although, you know, some of them I did quote anonymously, which is always a difficult decision. But in this case, there were a lot of people who were really afraid of speaking publicly because of retaliation. And it's a very emotional issue. I mean, a lot of people who had incredibly positive experiences with these coaches, a lot of people who reported what they felt were really traumatic experiences with with these coaches and this program. And, you know, I trust and liked and believed everyone that I was speaking to. So it was, it was really hard. You know, we didn't intend to conduct a parallel investigation or everything, but we just wanted to wrap our heads around what was happening, what was being alleged. And then once we kind of had the information about what was being alleged, stories from the athletes who were complaining and also from athletes who had different um different experiences. We went to the school, to the public information officer, the chief spokesperson at CU Boulder, who then uh, gave us an official response and also some emailed responses from the coaches and the dietitian who was involved with that. So we broke that story or in November. I mean, I, I say we, you know, I did the reporting on it, but I worked so closely with Sarah and with other editors that I trust that it feels like a, a joint effort, which is really the only way I think you could do something like this. And so you know, I, I just kept talking to people after the story came out too. There were a lot of people who were upset about the story coming out or upset about the way it was reported. So I kept talking to them. I FOIA'd the coach's contract because it seems like that's relevant in this situation. If they're being investigated, you know, what, what are the terms of the contract? How long does it go? What are the circumstances under which it can be terminated? And, you know, just kept talking to people and then waited for the results to come out. And when they didn't come out, and it seemed like everyone had thought they would already be out. We kind of wrote a, an interim story just based on the fact that the delay itself had become news at that point. And then we published that story and published a story about the delay. And then also the fact that alumni had very different opinions. And then the report came out and we published that. The chief spokesperson of the university gave it to us and we published the results there. So, you know, it's almost kind of case study here and do the benefits of testing and manipulating body composition outweigh the risks. You know, the investigation found credible evidence that this was happening at the school and also that it was harming a significant number of athletes. Um, although there are certainly people who question like whether the accounts in there are true or whether uh, the statements, yeah, whether the statements are true or how the investigation was conducted, et cetera. But this inv the investigation, the report, and all that information is out there, and people can kind of read firsthand what athletes, coaches, and members of the school's medical team, who are also interviewed for the investigation, have to say about this. And they can kind of make their own judgments about this practice and this program. So, you know, the other story, the bigger story, uh, or not the bigger story, but the broader story that it was not just about the school was sort of a chance to say, okay, well, are there programs doing this differently? And on top of that, if there are, are they performing well? And it turns out that some of the top women's cross-country programs in the country 
NC State and BU, uh, the coaches don't use this testing and don't try to manipulate body composition. And there are also a lot of other schools where they do some testing of body composition, but mostly things like bone density to ensure that athletes stay healthy. And they have protocols in place designed to help keep that information private and also pre prevent it from contributing to eating disorders. So, you know, you've mentioned solutions journalism a couple of times, and I think it is important to not only report on problems, but also kind of look at potential solutions. And I hope the stories like together convey the idea that there are different ways of doing things that might be better for, for many athletes. And, you know, at, at the very least, it just puts this information out there. So when young athletes are being recruited, they know kind of what they're getting into in certain programs. And they also know what kind of questions to ask before they commit to a program. Sure. And it occurs to me in looking at this, and this is what we've just gone through here is kind of the hard news portion of the beat. This is a very large beat. There's a lot of different components to it. One of the others is kind of more, I feel like, straightforward uh, in that you, you cover marathons, both in the traditional sense, like essentially a game story. Here's what happened from the elite runner's perspective. But also I found features. I found one from 2016 about a school principal in Philadelphia who taught her kids perseverance by running one. Uh, how do you decide what marathon stories you're going to cover? Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? I was thinking about this because marathons are such unique sporting events. It's like as if like the NL East playoffs and your rec league were like playing on the same field at the same time. So <laughs> you really get a lot of different angles in, in one event. And honestly, I love doing them both. What I decide to cover kind of depends on what my editors need. You know, I'm here in Chicago and they don't always send a full team from runner's world to cover the Chicago marathon, or they used to more in the past. And now with travel budgets and post pandemic, et cetera, it's, in recent years, it's been a little bit harder. So I often do cover the race from an elite perspective. On that day, I go, you know, there's a pre-event press conference where we talk to elite runners. It, on the day of the race itself, I'm in the press room, which is like a ballroom in a hotel, and I'm watching it on TV and writing a story. And they bring the athletes in afterwards, and we talk to them there. And I enjoy that. I mean, it's stressful for me because I have not historically a fast writer, I think, which is a detriment as a sports writer for sure. But... But I also like think it's very cool to get to talk to, you know, in 2019, the new women's world record was set here last year, the new American women's record was set here and to get to see that firsthand and then talk to athletes immediately afterward is very cool. But those other stories, the human interest stories, we call them are also really fulfilling, especially when they're here in Chicago, you know, that while well, the Philly marathon one, I really liked doing that one too, but there's one I did in before the Chicago Marathon last year about a group that's based here in Chicago called Peace Runners. And it's a group that's focused on Chicago's West Side, which has been historically under-resourced and where there's a huge gap in life, it's life expectancy when you compare it to some of the more affluent areas of the city. And there's an incredible man named Jackie Hoffman out there. His wife is a mental uh, health therapist, and they have worked together to create a, a group that brings both movement and mental health care to, to runners out there. And it's something that that isn't as widely available in that area. And they had 11 runners finish the marathon last year, which is very cool. And so I, I love bringing that, those stories like that, especially, you know, in a city as diverse as Chicago, like distance running has been a predominantly white sport at the recreational level. I mean, it's different at the elite level. So there's really zero reason that that magic shouldn't be available to everyone. So I love covering stories like that, as well as runners who've overcome obstacles, other obstacles to get to where they are. We've mentioned like game stories, feature stories, hard news. You also do some things that I would call self-care journalism, if that's even necessarily a thing. 
How Do You Run a Mile with an eight-week training plan, a piece for the New York Times on the benefits of Tai Chi. Um, you write about injury prevention. Uh, you write about you wrote a piece called The Slacker's Guide to Seeing the Doctor, another about what do you need in a running shoe. What are those pieces like to do? Those are fun. We usually call them service journalism, although I do like self-care journalism too. I might adopt that. I they're they're fun. And sometimes those ideas come from like problems that I have. I had a great editor, Amy Rushlow, once who told me uh, journalists don't have problems, they have story ideas. And uh, <laughs> so sometimes it's just in difficulties I encounter in my own running or talking with my friends while we're running or just things that, you know, issues that we all face. But a lot of times those come as assignments from editors too. And they are tricky because, you know, there is, because experts so often disagree on like health advice and also because everyone comes from their own background and they're in their own situation, have their own like socioeconomic status and their own access to healthcare and lack of access to healthcare. So it's hard to write things that are universally applicable. And I kind of think of them as like puzzles where how can I give people enough information to make smart decisions without it being too prescriptive or without it also without, you know, I think sometimes when you do those, you run the risk of like over moralizing health or kind of making people feel bad if they don't do a certain thing or if they're not healthy enough or that they owe it to, to the world to be their healthiest self by following these 10 steps. You know, I, I don't like to like over prescribe in that way. So I find them tricky, but I also find that like kind of a welcome creative challenge to figure out how to, again, synthesize information from experts, portray it accurately in lay language, but also make it useful for people. Yeah. And it is, as you said, it is challenging because different people have different takes. I've seen it in particular in, in just my reading experience recently with regards to food and diet and things of that sort. Yes. So you you have done some non-sports pieces, some non-running pieces. I know a fair number of those. And a couple that I found were for Chicago Magazine. Uh, you did one on what do COVID nurses know and another called what do COVID, what do COVID survivors know. These are oral histories, 5,000 words, 6,000 words, a collection of firsthand stories about working through and surviving the pandemic. What can you tell us about those? Yeah, those were, again, also pieces that were really difficult to do, but really rewarding. And my editors at Chicago Magazine, they had done several of these pieces before the pandemic. There was like what cops know, what trauma docs know, what CTA workers, Chicago Transit Authority workers know. So the idea is that if you get a bunch of people together and promise them anonymity and just ask them to freely discuss what they've been through, you're going to get something pretty interesting and maybe a more accurate representation of a profession, of a situation, et cetera, than you might by uh, attaching people's names and affiliations to things. So, so that's kind of the idea. And they had uh, really a lot of success with doing this in those other fields. And so when the pandemic hit, you know, I know they and, and I alike were just kind of thinking of the best way to approach this. And I think they had the very smart idea to kind of apply this strategy to this situation. And you're right, it's kind of like an oral history or a time capsule. And I mean, in a way, it, it felt like possibly the most important thing I personally could be doing at that time. You know, it, I couldn't, you know, so many of us felt like, what what can we do in this in this really challenging period? And these people were doing so much or suffering so much. 
And it was a, a challenge from a reporting perspective, especially, if, you know, the first one with the nurses, like so often I'm calling a PR department and saying like, hey, can you recommend a nurse? But like, it's a little bit harder when you're like, hey, can you recommend a nurse that's not going to be quoted by name and they might say bad stuff? <laughs> like it's, it was, it was hard, but you know, some of them did come through and saw the greater good in this piece. And then there were also nurses that I either were friends of friends of mine or that I interviewed before. And so I just spent a lot of hours on Zoom hearing these really emotional and personal stories of both nurses and for the later piece, people who had survived COVID. And I mean, a lot of tears and a lot of uh, painful emotions and also a lot of beautiful emotions. And when I look back on those pieces now, it really does take me right back to that time for, for better and worse. But I think it's really important to remember because there's so much that was so shocking and unusual. And let's hope that the you know, the word of the day at the time, unprecedented. Let's hope it stays that way for a while. But, you know, I, th I think I will probably go back and read them every couple of years just to remind myself too. And I'm really proud of them. And what do blank know uh, is certainly an interesting uh, template to use for any number of uh, subjects that you might be writing about. You mentioned before that you're not the fastest of writers, but what's the process of writing like for you? I find it, yeah, I'm, I'm not very fast. It's really hard to explain uh, what is it like for me. It's mysterious. I don't really know how it works. And sometimes it's really hard and frustrating. And sometimes it's amazing. And when I've done it and feel like I've done it well, it's uh, the most fulfilling thing I could imagine. So that's the best answer I have to that question. No, that, that's great. It's true. I think I think that that applies to a lot of people. I know that sometimes I can't explain it. What what you you you're involved in other projects as well. Uh, a couple that I think are particularly cool. We'll take them one at a time here. What's Starting Line 1928? Yeah, Starting Line 1928 is an oral history project. It's a podcast. Uh, the goal is to preserve the voices of the pioneers of women's running. You know, we talk about all of these things with body composition, body image, eating disorders. I mean, we, I think it's, those are things that have kind of come up, I think, in part because for a long time, women weren't allowed to run or compete in any sport. And now we are, but the systems that we're in were not necessarily always designed for women's bodies and women's needs. And there's an amazing book called Good for a Girl by Lauren Fleshman, who's a former elite athlete, where she talks about some of these things. But anyway, what I say that all as kind of an aside, you know, there are women who are still alive today who are told that they could not run more than 800 meters because their uterus would fall out if they did. And so many of those women disagreed with that notion and persevered and kept running anyway. And some of them, you know, especially women of color or women from other marginalized backgrounds face even greater barriers and they still persisted and they still ran and they blazed the trails for the rest of us today. And starting line 1928 is an effort to talk to them while they're still with us about what that was like and what they learned from that experience and what they see in the running world of today. So it's, there's kind of four of us who are on the leadership team for that. It started as kind of a volunteer project inspired by a man named Gary Corbett, who's a kind of a grand historian of, of runners. His dad was a famous black ultra runner and he, Gary started by trying to preserve his dad's records and then broadened his efforts into running history overall, and then wanted to start a women's project and kind of got some volunteers to help. And so I was one of those. And after that, we got a $10,000 grant from an organization called Tracksmith, which makes running clothes and running shoes. They had a creative fellowship where they award grants every year to people doing creative projects related to running. And we were fortunate enough to get one of those. And that has sustained us up until now. And then we are looking for new funding. If anyone has a, has a desire to fund an oral history podcast, 
But yeah, that has been a really incredible project. I've both gotten to interview some of these women myself and also edit other women who other historians and train other historians who've been doing these interviews too. So, and there's a website starting line1928.com where you can listen to those and read stories about those women. And I think it's especially funny to like read the news coverage of women runners at the time. It's yeah, it's kind of mind blowing how far we've come, but we still have a ways to go. (laughs) Sure. Now that's not the only podcast that you're involved in. What's the goal of the injured athletes podcast? Yeah. So the injured athletes club came out of I wrote, co-wrote a book that published in 2019 called Rebound, Train Your Mind to Bounce Back Stronger from Sports Injuries. I co-wrote that with a woman who's a mental skills coach, Carrie Jackson. And the whole goal of that book and the Injured Athletes Club podcast is to provide support to athletes on the psychological side, mental side of sports injuries. So often, I mean... A- Injuries are a nearly inevitable part of the athletic experience, running, of course, being one sport where people get injured a lot, but baseball too, many, pretty much every sport, when you push your body, um, you're going to eventually push it over the line. And we noticed that athletes a lot of times get physical therapy, they get physical support for their injuries, but they don't always get support on the mental emotional side, which is very important to the healing process and also to overall health and well-being. So we wrote a book to kind of help athletes with that. And we launched a podcast to kind of support the book. And so we interview mostly athletes themselves who are injured or have been injured about their experiences, especially about the mental side of it and how they've kind of persevered and bounced back stronger. So that's been, gosh, we've been doing that since 2016. It's been a few years since we started the whole project. I'd have to look exactly when the podcast launched, but that's been really fulfilling too. And in between interviewing injured athletes, Carrie, my co-host, who, like I said, is a mental skills coach, she answers questions from athletes about their injuries. Like, what do I do when everyone around me is telling me to stop running, but I don't want to, or like, how do I get the support I need? Or, you know, how do I navigate having a chronic illness and still wanting to participate in a sport? And those are really helpful and valuable too. And I've come back to those when I have been injured as well, because Uh, that can just happen for me too. So it's building community. Essentially you've created this, this community that, and I think it just kind of feeds onto itself and the podcast uh, continues. And as you said, I've been doing it for five, six years. Is there, a, just to kind of round out the, the discussion here, like two or three things, is there a journalism-related issue that you're particularly passionate about? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, one thing that I've kind of mentioned just in terms of like coverage of running, I mean, I think there's always a need for more diversity, both in the people writing the stories and the people featured in the stories. And that's something that I've tried to keep in mind. When it comes to freelancing, I mean, there are a lot of issues right now. And one of them just being contracts. It's <laughs> like definitely one of the more challenging aspects of the job. And contracts seem to keep getting more and more restrictive and less and less favorable to freelancers. There are all kinds of indemnity clauses where it's like if someone sues a publication because of a story you write, you not only have to pay your own legal expenses, but the legal expenses of the company, even if it's a frivolous lawsuit. And that just really isn't conducive to to freelancers being able to, to, ha- to stay in this career. And so many publications rely on freelancers right now. It's just, there's so much of that. And it's also, you know, just all in legal language. It's really hard for the individual contractor to decipher and and navigate and even ask to change. So I think that's an issue that definitely needs some attention and definitely have been 
active in talking with writing groups about how to how to navigate that. Okay, so that's one of the more difficult things to deal with. What's the best part of the job? The best part is just having the freedom to pick and choose the projects I want to work on and those that I don't want to work on. When I walked out of work the last day of my job, and again, this was a job that I really liked and I was there for six years, but that feeling of freedom when I left that last day and that idea that like no one really owned me or my time anymore, it was incredibly liberating. And I just think I would have a really hard time going, going back to that. So yeah, just you know, it definitely has its challenges, but I think I, you offset those by finding community, by connecting with other freelance writers, especially, and just, you know, having kind of a business plan and, and working that in a way, you know, recognizing that you're running a business too. You're not just writing. And I, yeah, I wouldn't go back. <laughs> yeah. That's what Pete uh, Croato said. Running a business it definitely has to be uh, in the thought process as you do it. What's your favorite type of story to write? I really think it's those that I kind of mentioned earlier, where I find a group of experts who know a lot about something and a group of people who are really struggling with something and bridge that gap and bring them together and help people find solutions to their problems. That's that's great. That's, as you said, solutions journalism. So the podcast is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your good work, and we ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work? Maybe even someone you don't know. Yes, I think I have to salute the student journalist at Northwestern, my alma mater. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about my reporting on issues in the NCAA, and I think they did an incredible job of reporting about issues within their own program. That had to be, I know how hard that is to do even from the outside. I can't even imagine how challenging it was for student journalists to report about the issues in the football program at Northwestern and the work that they did made a real difference. So I salute them. Awesome. Cindy Kuzma, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck with all of your many projects. We will certainly be keeping tabs on those. Hey, thank you so much, Mark. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.